Hello. Thanks for listening and joining us on the Be Yourself Happy, Healthy, Hopeful podcast. I'm your host, Steph, a health promoter from the Bulimia Anorexia Nervosa Association here in Windsor, Ontario. On this podcast, we explore topics related to health, mental wellness, and creating a happy, healthy, and hopeful life full of opportunities for yourself. Hi, and thanks for being here. This is our special Eating Disorders Awareness Week episode. Eating Disorders Awareness Week is also called EDA for short, and it runs annually each February from the 1st to the 7th within Canada. EDA has been commemorated across our country since 1988 by established eating disorder organizations, education and public health institutions, and concerned members of the public. It draws attention to the causes, prevalence, and impact of eating disorders. Traditionally, organizations around the country host local events, like notable landmarks in the color purple, and engage in public education campaigns in an effort to raise awareness of eating disorders. Due to COVID-19, our EDAW at BANA will look a little bit different. That being said, COVID will not stop us from educating the public and raising awareness about eating disorders. BANA will be hosting our EDAW events virtually this year. The week of February 1st to the 7th, we'll be hosting various virtual education events you won't want to miss, a virtual yoga class in support of eating disorder awareness hosted by Strong Body Fitness, and a special EDAW edition of our magazine, the Be Yourself magazine. You can also expect us to be on our social media channels at Banna Windsor with special guests and additional eating disorder awareness information all of this week. Be sure to look out for a special giveaway on our Instagram for those who show support for this cause. If you want to get involved with EDAW, please go to our social media and check out our schedule for more details about how you can get involved. If you'd like to donate, we also accept donations. To help support local services in Windsor-Essex, please visit our website www.bana.ca. Another way you can contribute is by attending the virtual yoga class hosted by Strong Body and Yoga Fitness. Find the link on our social media. Another way you can donate is to buy a Banna Be Kind to Yourself t-shirt. A suggested donation of $10 is appreciated, and you can purchase one by emailing us at info at The year's national theme is What Happened While We Waited. This theme was chosen to highlight the lived experiences of those with eating disorders who are in need of quality and accessible mental health treatment in our country. The theme also emphasizes the nuances of this time, including both the positive and negative implications of the pandemic. It is estimated that over 1 million Canadians have an eating disorder. It is thought that this number is underreported given secrecy around having an eating disorder, as well as the stigma associated with mental illness and coming forward for help. To highlight this year's theme at BANA, you will find within Banna's Be Yourself magazine and on our social media, features of Canadians with lived experiences and their stories on how they navigated accessing treatment and their recovery. Today for our special EDA episode of the podcast, my guest is Ari Maharaj. 
Ari is the Outreach and Education Coordinator at the National Eating Disorders Information Center, or NEDIC, based out of Toronto. A secondary area of Ari's work outside of his role at NEDIC is providing counseling and group therapy in his community. NEDIC provides information, resources, referrals, and support to Canadians affected by eating disorders through their toll-free helpline and instant chat. Outreach and education programming focuses on the awareness and prevention of eating disorders, and they provide it to people across Canada through online services, as well as in person in the greater Toronto area. Ari and I discuss what is Eating Disorders Awareness Week, some myths and misconceptions associated with eating disorders, changes that could be made within our healthcare system in order to improve eating disorder care, how far we need to go when it comes to eating disorder prevention and how we can get there, and all other things eating disorder awareness and advocacy. Ari is a wealth of knowledge and his kind, approachable personality is also so comforting and refreshing. I am so excited for you all to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy and happy Eating Disorders Awareness Week 2021. Hey Ari, thank you for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited. Me too. And I just wanted to note before we do get started that we are recording this socially distanced and also from different cities. So we do apologize if there's any sound interruptions that might come through that weren't weren't expected, but that's the world that we're living in today. So uh, thanks for your understanding. Um, and this episode will be coming out the week of EDA, or Eating Disorder Awareness Week, which is February 1st to 7th. And um, I felt that Ari would be such a fitting guest for this episode because he is well-versed in all things um, education, awareness, and advocacy as it relates to eating disorders. So I'm really happy he was able to be here. Um, and... I think what we can get started with is for those listening to learn a little bit more about you. So maybe you can just introduce yourself and tell me about the work you do and we can learn a little bit more about you. Yeah, so hi everyone. Um, my name is Ari. I use he, him pronouns and I'm the Outreach and Education Coordinator at the National Eating Disorder Information Centre. Um, we're an organization based out of the University Health Network in Toronto, Ontario. But if you know us, it's because our helpline is a national English-speaking toll-free um, telephone service and we have an online web chat and um, we get to do wonderful things like hosting a national service provider directory that really helps us connect people to care in their local communities. Um, my like favorite part of my job, though, is prevention stuff. I don't know if... Um, will ever have enough like clinical resources or treatment resources to be able to care for everyone. And I'm way more invested in trying to make sure that eating disorders and other mental health conditions don't even happen in the first place. So what are ways we can modify environments and create structural change and um, embed a lot of the prevention based stuff that we can talk about here today into the ways in which we want to create a better world and a world where people um, can reach a point of acceptance with their bodies and with food and with themselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I agree that we'll probably, we have a long way to go. Um, but I think organizations like ours, 
Um, and the work that we do is definitely that first step to get there and um, doing things like this, like education and awareness is power. So um, I, I'm totally on the same page as you. I think that's really one of the the first steps we can do to create change in our world. So I'm on the same page with you as about that. Um, because this is the EDOT episode, um, maybe we can talk a little bit about what that is <laughs> and um, why it it even takes place here in Canada or and how it began. So maybe you can get going on that. Yeah, for sure. Um, EDA, which you're going to hear very often throughout this, is stands for Eating Disorders Awareness Week. Um, it started in the late 1980s, and um, it's now February 1st to 7th every year. Um, eating disorder groups across Canada unite with a national week of action focused on educating the public about eating disorders, and it's really a time to escalate awareness of the impact of eating disorders, some of the dangerous stereotypes and myths, and some of the supports available to people affected by them. It's really a collective coast-to-coast-to-coast effort. And this year, we're more so going to focus in on hosting some virtual events, um, engage in a national conversation about just the times that we're living in. Um, Our theme this year is like what happened while we waited. And people with eating disorders have been waiting a long time for equitable support for things that they're struggling with. And I think the pandemic itself there's been some neg- negative implications of that, but then also some ways that people have used the time and space and the conversation that I think we're now having as a country and as a society about mental health to potentially experience some positives too. And we're going to try this year to hold space for all of that complexity in people's different experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that um, the thought that went into choosing the theme this year, um, it's really um, an important one. And it will definitely highlight both, you know, the positives and the negatives of what the pandemic has brought to our field. Um, So I know at BANA, we have a few lived experienced um, guests as a part of our um, magazine and on our social media that week. And um, I always feel that it's those stories that really touch people's hearts and enact more change as well. Um, so I think that theme is is a really good one, not only for the world we're living in, but also in general to to kind of get that um, those heartstrings pulled. You know, it's those stories that are really helpful in that. I think for sure. I think it's always going to be a combination of like data and evidence for those who really yeah. um, need that, and I think the like personal stories of folks who are actually affected. Because I think we can also get all the data that we want and all the numbers that we want. But if people don't feel like they resonate with the concern, and I think for eating disorders, especially how much people think it's just like a thing that affects like 2% of people. And it's really just a medical thing. And it only affects women and girls. And like all of those stereotypes probably really dampens the actual impact of the amount of people who struggle with disordered eating. And for anyone listening, like I know we're, eating disorder organizations so you're probably already aware of this but mm-hmm. for those who are listening who maybe just be finding this um on the like out of the blue you probably know someone in your life who struggles with disordered eating and the amount of times that people have conversations about food and weight and body and all those risk factors i think it's such a more prevalent issue than we've been talking about and it really gives me motivation and probably you staff motivation to keep on doing the work that we do because um, there's so much that can happen still 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you brought up the one of the main goals of the work I do is kind of to dis dis um, spell those myths and misconception and provide more accurate information. Um, and I really do think that you're right in they for some reason eating disorders are kind of cast aside they're um, in terms of mental health because they, they have that physical component as well so maybe it's just that they're <clears throat> a little more confusing to people or they can't really wrap their hand around it so I agree like that's my motivation too um, recently I um someone I know came forward with an eating disorder and um, my in the write-up about it, um, uh, it's explained of some of the behaviors that he he does. And um, I remember um, someone who read this, they came back to me and they said, oh, but that, that just kind of seems like, um, you know, they were altering what they're eating in order to, you know, make gains in um, in their performance. So I was like, like just that small comment of someone I knew very well I was like wow so it is so um commonplace for people to think that these behaviors are so normal right um and I think that's just part of the society that we've you know grew up in that disordered eating has been cast as a little bit typical and normal right um so you know that one small comment just recently kind of got to me and I was like wow we got a lot of work to do <laughs> is that, that ad additional motivation for me yeah I think it's a really interesting contrast so eating disorders obviously um really do correlate with many other mental health conditions that we have like a lot of people with eating disorders also struggle with a substance use issue or mm -hmm. bipolar or self-harm or depression or anxiety but i think what makes eating disorders sometimes a little bit different is just how validated the behaviors are like mm -hmm. we like weight loss for dieting like so many people there's, there's so many compliments or like when i see young folks like posting their exercise routines and I feel like over the course of the pandemic we like saw that really often like your home workout like it's you get validated for it and that's not to say that I think the other mental illnesses might not have might not get validated for some of their behaviors too but I feel like it can really get people stuck in it and I feel like it changes our understanding of what stigma actually means like mm -hmm. what is the stigma around eating disorders because I think it's really tied into the ways in which we have um a fat phobic society or a society that really values people in certain bodies and others and a society that I think if we even consider um, things that have happened politically like one that's based in supremacy like mm -hmm. there's certain kinds of bodies that are deemed better certain kinds of people who are deemed better than others and it's such like a like heartbreaking way to even live I think sometimes and there's so much competition inherent in that when I mm -hmm. really think coming to a place of acceptance like we all have a role we all have something a place to play we all have something that we can do in our lives that are meaningful is such a more loving and kind way to go through life and I think a less stressful way than the inherent supremacy competition dominated world that we I think live in at least as people in Ontario southern Ontario mm -hmm. yeah I agree with you um and you brought up um some of as you were speaking before, some of those myths and misconceptions. So I felt that it would be good to bring these to light given that this week is all about awareness and dispelling some of these myths. 
<clears throat> so what are some of those common myths and misconceptions? Yeah, I think one I'm going to talk about is maybe a little bit less common, but one of the messages for this year's EDAW, as we consider our key messages, are there are many barriers to care that disproportionately affect underserved communities. And I think with eating disorders, and as we see this with the intersection with the COVID-19 pandemic, I think people might not realize how much food insecurity can mm -hmm. play in to an eating disorder. And so while the research on this is pretty correlational, there's a link between food insecurity and binge eating. And so you can think about potentially the reasons why this might be the case, like folks who lack resources to regularly purchase enough food to meet their nutritional needs undergo forced cycles of food restriction because they don't have food. Mm -hmm. And so you might, that might lead to more binge eating because the biological effects of starvation is going to make your brain crave food more. So your brain's like, hey, give me food to survive, give me food to survive. And sometimes it can't get it. And so your whole relationship with food kind of gets warped. And if you add that to the economic strain that someone experiencing food insecurity likely has too, it also might promote binge eating as a coping mechanism that makes sense at the time, but causes distress later. And so there's so many different layers of health. Like when we hear stories of folks from families who suffer from food shortages, and these folks are like feeling shame about being hungry and having an appetite or feeling guilt even about eating and they're binge eating mm -hmm. because they're like, well, like I know my family and my loved ones, like we don't even have enough food, but I feel like I need to eat it all. Like binge eating disorder in particular, I think is something that there's so many myths and misconceptions around it. And I think we live in a time right now that we can convey a lot of really key information about ways in which like policy failures in the form mm -hmm. of food insecurity can sometimes lead to individual mental health experiences like we see with binge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so um, complex and intertwined. Um, I'm glad that you brought that to light um, because like I said, from the top, there is confusion around all this. Um, and when, but you, when you really start to unpeel the layers of how complex an eating disorder can be and how um, like systemic policies have perhaps put us in some of these positions, um, that's not something that really a lot of people might consider just thinking about an eating disorder. So yeah, yeah. I'm glad you brought that one up. One other example, just because people I feel like are still going through this and where we're based out of Windsor and Toronto right now, it's really hard for folks with eating disorders to sometimes follow the government recommendation of like, just stock up on food, like buy enough food for a mm -hmm. week or two at a time and reduce your trips to the grocery store, which like makes sense from that kind of public health perspective. But when you consider someone who struggles with an eating disorder, and now they're confined at home, right. surrounded by large quantities of food, often without their support networks, and that their behaviors might come up anyways, as a result of coping with their, their hard feelings, the difficult emotions that are coming up. Um, you're going to get stressed and the eating disorder might escalate. And if you have family members of the people you're quarantining with are also stressed, and then you're just in this like interpersonal cycle of everyone taking out their stress on each other, that might heighten your eating disorder behaviors again. So there's so many different ways in which mm -hmm. all of this can manifest, especially during this time, I think, in a more heightened way um, when like some of it is is stuff that's completely out of our control, like yeah. the public health recommendations, but the ways in which they might affect a person. I feel like we can do a better job as a society of like 
providing those education pieces, providing that modification, like strategies proactively to like better help folks with eating disorders while they're struggling with quarantine. Like, I think those are all things that we can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's a difficult time for everyone. And then all of these added, um, if you are struggling with a mental illness, um, and perhaps not having those supports or that regular routine or um, even, you know, certain physical activity you, you used to be involved in, it does make things extra difficult. So um, it's a hard time for, for many and, and definitely for those with eating disorders. Um, did we want to touch on any other misconceptions? I'm curious for you, Steph, like mm-hmm. what what Has comes there been in? anything in your work that you've seen, especially as like being in a border town in Windsor of like something yeah. like you and I know a lot of the myths and misconceptions and there's some that we don't know, but what, what's been super apparent when you've been out in the community that like is just showing up a lot more you think right now? Mm. Um, I, what came to mind when you said that is we've noticed there's a part of one of the presentations we do for youth where one of the stats we say um, that I think it's it's from a study out of Toronto, I believe, and it's 81% of 10-year-olds reported that they had dieted at least once. And what we've, we, like, I've only been doing this a few years, but even in those two years, I have noticed there used to be a lot of, um, when we say this to people and we say, hey, when you were 10, were you thinking about your next diet? There used to be a lot of no's and gradually we've seen a lot more yeses And um, I'm not surprised by that because, you know, you and I know the research behind it is that, you know, at 9, 10, that's sometimes when we start seeing preoccupation with the body, things like that. Um, But many people are still surprised by how young one can be um, starting to think about their body image and that um, all that external information a young person is getting is having an impact on the way they feel about body or their food choices, um, their relationship with exercise, things like that. So um, I know that it's more considered, you know, during high school for a lot of people are thinking, okay, that's maybe when there's a there's additional um, stressors that may impact some, the way a young person feels about their body. I don't think we're quite there where there's that link where you know a parent or a caregiver recognizes that what they're saying around food or um about their bodies comments about bodies that that really does have an influence on at such a young age so um I think there's still work to be done there and that's no one's fault I know like (laughs) that's no that's not a parent's fault or caregiver's fault or an influencer's fault um I think it's just again prevention and getting on the same page and educating on how uh, how young people really are influenced by what we say at, at, at really young age. So the work needs to be done there as well. Yeah, I really like to acknowledge like the role of like diet culture and how it permeates society when we talk about things like this, right? Because I also think it's a way to like um, reduce the blame that an individual parent or an individual like carer or someone might feel like diet culture, those like systems of beliefs that worship thinness and equates it to health and one's worth and demonizes certain ways of eating while elevating others. Like it's, it's just everywhere. Like we, yeah. we see it all the time in like 
sometimes it's in the like labeling foods and the things we see. So like whether you're like on you're going you're going to the grocery shop and you see things that are sponsored by Weight Watchers and Blue Menu, or if you're at the gym and you see weight loss programs that guarantee results, or you're like taking care of your skin or doing wellness treatments and they're promising to transform your body in a short period of time. If you as an adult are seeing that and starting to engage in that, you might think that your kid doesn't necessarily see that and models it, but but they absolutely are paying attention to you. You're their most important person in their life. And um, I think it's good for us as adults to like acknowledge where those things might be coming from mm-hmm. and just make sure that we're, if we can train our own kind of system, like our own process to be like, oh, oh, like that's diet culture. Like it's, it's trying to promise me something. And like, I need to make sure like I'm going to catch myself when I'm going to criticize my body in front of my child or even for myself when I'm putting on certain kinds of clothes and whatever. You modeling those positive behaviors is totally going to help your loved one also model those positive behaviors too. And it can be so hard just because of how much even money goes into diet culture. Um, so hard to reject those little things like changing the language we use regarding food, weight, and body. Like when we can talk about this, like I use fuel food and fun food. I'm not sure if you all use the same banana or like mm-hmm. larger and smaller bodies instead of overweight and underweight, right? Like yeah. things that are a little bit more descriptive. These are all like small ways that kind of help model a little bit more positive behaviors. I feel like for people. Yeah. Yeah. We do also say sometimes foods, everyday foods, um, we say uh, fun foods or just call the food by its name too. <laughs> yeah, um, and, and like a grape is a grape and the lemon is a lemon and chips are chips. Like, you know, yeah. we don't have to like provide the like morally ambiguous label of like, this is a good thing and this is a bad thing. And it's, it's sad sometimes when like we can't, I don't even feel like I use words like healthy and unhealthy anymore because they're just so like attached to good and bad now. Um, yeah. Like, so now it's like I almost like these foods are more nutritious for you and they're they give you their, the fuel your body needs to function. And these ones maybe don't provide nutritional value, but they provide value in other ways because they're fun and they're part of your cultural tradition or they're a fun thing on a Friday night or a Saturday night or something like that when you need it, like a birthday, things like that. Like there's room for foods everywhere. Um, but like diet culture totally teaches us the we have to unlearn all the rules I think we've learned over the course of our lives um, and hopefully get our kids as early as we can and to help them be mindful of their relationship with food and we can help with that as adults. Mm-hmm. I um, And I think it takes time too. So almost being kind to yourself in that process. I think when I began my work at BANA, um, those messages will, were definitely ingrained in me. And my background's in nutrition as well. So maybe even to a greater extent. And um, just due to the training that I've had. And um, I found myself almost flip-flopping. You know, I, I'd be I'd be like, okay, well, indulge in anything then and, and eat whatever you want. But then, you know, I wasn't feeling the greatest myself doing that. Um, and then I'd kind of flip-flop back. So it's... It's finding, you know, that happy medium where it makes sense to you and finding that balance, I I guess. I don't know if balance is the right word because I don't know if we're ever in balance, but finding what works for you in relation to food. 
Uh, I've also noticed as um, I've become an aunt and um, just observing my niece and my nephew and and their relationship with food and how innate and intuitive it is for them, I'm, I be, I've become very um, protective now that I have the knowledge <laughs> that I do about what we're saying around food or commenting on um, hunger and fullness and finishing the plate and things like that. Um, so over time, it's it's definitely influenced people around me too. So it's, it's small steps in 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 um in that process of getting to that place that is feels right for you and your relationship with food and then you can also educate those around you mm-hmm. which isn't always like easy most, <laughs> most folks are well intended like most folks are trying to yeah to just like be mindful and share education and, and like they think what they're doing is the healthy thing or the yeah. right message and i think it's like a, a clue for me always is like am I thinking that I'm doing the right thing, but it's not having the outcome that I want? Like I'm seeing my loved one, like get more stressed or I'm seeing them Mm. become unhappy during mealtimes or they're suddenly avoiding eating with me and things like that. Like if that outcome isn't happening, because even though you think you're doing the right thing, then it maybe means that something's up. So use that as an opportunity to evaluate what the right thing actually is and where you're getting your information. And the folks who are listening here, I want to commend you that you're like already kind of taking the first step around prevention of eating disorders because you're getting educated from reputable sources. And that's what Nadek tries to be. I know that's what Banna tries to be. Um, And like, that's, that's a step. That's a positive step. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I wanted to talk a little bit more about Nadek and I know you already did a little bit at the top there, but maybe you can tell me more about what Nadek does and, um, as well as your role there. Yeah, so Netic, um, we operate a national toll-free telephone helpline and an online chat service. We have folks from across the country, our 10 provinces and three territories and all across the board who can connect with us once they have a phone line or an internet connection. And we can provide that in the moment support if you're struggling in the moment, um, but also provide like access to resources or access to support providers in your country so um when we hear some folks who are contacting us near the windsor area you better be sure we're telling them about banna when we're connecting with folks in calgary we're telling them about silver linings foundation in calgary when we're connecting with folks in newfoundland we're telling them about the eating disorder foundation of newfoundland and labrador we act as that information hub to be able to connect people to care in their local community and my role as Irish and education coordinator is to make sure that that message is really getting out there and engage in actually doing some of this education stuff that we've been talking about with communities. So whether that's healthcare teams and primary care providers, because sometimes doctors even aren't the most informed on these kinds of issues, whether that's going into schools and talking with educators and um, kids and guidance counselors, like I know Banna does, talking to parents, um, and then engaging in like, Things like EDAW, like creating public awareness and education campaigns to really get the message out on social media or develop resources to communicate and hand out and give to people who are struggling. Um, Those are all things within the scope of of what we do at Netic. Awesome. And I know um, I get a lot of joy from the variety that my work provides because we're usually interacting with 
very different crowds and um, meeting different people. So, um, and as, and also, you know, usually teaching them something new, which can be really fun. So I was curious for you, what drew you to this type of work? Yeah, it's a really like wonderful question because I think for me and for probably for a lot of people, like I didn't know that this job was a job that could exist. Yeah, me um, too. I've always thought that you <laughs> like, okay, cool. You want to work in mental health? Like you can either work in research or you could work in like clinical, like go be a, a therapist or a psychologist or something like that. And while I did end up doing my master's to become a registered psychotherapist qualifying in Ontario, um, and I provide individual therapy and, and group therapy, um, I like didn't only want to do that. I Part of me wanting to be a registered psychotherapist was because you needed to be, you needed to do that in order to ethically mm-hmm. see people in that kind of context. And for me, it's just like my way of keeping my ear on the ground. Like I didn't want to become one of those prevention or policy folks who like had really good intentions, but then ended up forgetting about the people who were really struggling and those in the community and those lived experiences. And so my therapy practice really helps me every week stay grounded to why I'm actually here. But my love is to do this kind of prevention work because I think for in every week, if I might see like 10 people or something, if I go do one workshop or if I go into one school, like that's hundreds, if not thousands of people every single time. And I think that kind of blend really ticks all my boxes. It lets Mm -hmm. me do that like high impact policy prevention stuff at Medic, being an educator and then also have my therapy practice where I'm able to like help people one-on-one if I really need to. And I totally didn't know that was a thing even throughout university. I didn't, I kind of like made my way here very slowly, just considering myself, like, what is it that I actually want to do in society? Like, what problems do I want to try to solve? How do I want to apply my energy? And eventually ended up like trying to hold space for all of me rather than being like, fine, like, I guess I like the clinical more. And so let me do that, even though that's only 60% of me. Like I tried to just, how do I fit 100% of me and 100% of my things? Um, And that led me here. And I'm happy with that. Mm, That's so wonderful. And I can relate too because I, but I think, I feel like you gave it a lot more thought and consideration when you said, um, you know, how do I want to take up energy? I feel like I almost was, it found me a little bit, but I also didn't know very much about this type of role. Um, and my, both my mom and my sister's sister are, um, teachers and I took the health route, but like you, I didn't know this existed and I felt as though I needed, I initially did occupational therapy and I, I didn't, I didn't quite feel tied or drawn to that once I started doing it more professionally after school. Um, But I believe like, and then I pursued my passion for nutrition and they both come together really nicely in this role, as well as I think in my genes, I have that teacher, um, you know, tendency to maybe be an educator. So um, it's a nice, it's, it's a nice uh, blend of, you know, both my tra- traditional training and then some of my passion as well. And the messaging that goes along with it, I'm very in line with too, in terms of, you know, um, diverse bodies and eating all kinds of foods and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really like your story too, because it, like, I feel like sometimes 
throughout all of my education, like every single like alumni or something that came back or any of them was always like, find your passion and do it. But I feel like mm-hmm. it's always like, how? Like, how is it that we do that? And I think your like description of how like the work found you, I think for those listening who are also struggling to find their passion, like know that it could just be like exploring something that happens on a whim. Like, hey, like I, I know I really like this. So let me like explore what I think. How can I do this as a paid job? Or like, how can I, how can I like do this in a way that makes me happy? And it, like finding your passion is sometimes just like, exploring those whims within yourself and seeing what can come from it it's not like you have to go on some like google search and find some like assessment thing that says this is your passion or like all of that kind of jazz like it can really just be you trying something new and like going through a whole bunch of different things in life in order to find what actually makes you tick um it it doesn't have to there's probably something that isn't just 100 percent perfect for you you're probably a combination of things you know yeah, and it can look whichever way you'd like it to look. We don't have to fit into those boxes. For sure. I feel like a lot of eating disorder stuff can sometimes come back to like that like uncertainty around control and a lot of the mm-hmm. like, I need to find the perfect thing and be like, this is what I need and this is what I deserve. And I think sometimes it's just like embracing the gray, like embracing that it's not, it's going to be this middle and how do we make up all of our how do we give all of ourselves an opportunity to like find space to make them happy rather than thinking that you're just one being um that is only going to be satisfied by one thing because I think you're a lot more complex than that and I think that's really fun rather than scary Mm -hmm. yeah it's changing the perspective like like that last thing you just said um where um it doesn't have to be like a scary thing to try something new and it it doesn't have to be this big thing either so altering perspective um of you know i'm just gonna try this today and and see how i feel about it oh i didn't like that try something else and and it doesn't have to be a big failure it's rather a learning opportunity um and when you spoke about sorry you spoke about netic and um the chat line as well as the the number that um people reach out to for um, advice or if one is struggling and they need help <clears throat> and I am curious with the pandemic um, how that has influenced the inquiries that you're getting or even the amount of people that are reaching out so what what are we seeing now yeah I think like a lot of mental health services we've seen a really big spike in demand and especially in how people are using our service. So I would say right now, around 70% of the folks reaching out are contacting us for in-the-moment support, which is like, I'm just struggling right now in the moment and I want someone to talk to, Mm -hmm. which is really different than our usual like 33, 33, 33% split between support and resources and referrals. We find that while we're still giving out resources and referrals, a lot of our folks reaching out right now are just just want to talk like they're just in need experiencing something and um it's really awesome that they decided to reach out for help i think another thing is that with a lot of hospital services often being rerouted because of the pandemic like Mm -hmm. there's not always resources to support the eating disorder pieces which is really sad um a lot of our referrals 60 percent or so have been to eating disorder community groups across the country so people running support groups people doing online peer support um Looking Glass, British Columbia, Eating Disorders, Nova Scotia, um, Sheena's Placed, things like that, who um, 
they're providing some in the moment support that's often free or like low low barrier in terms of um, reduced cost for services that really meet people where they're at and this time even though it's not a replacement for kind of sometimes the more intensive thing and a lot of people I think are still really struggling with that um, feeling sick like we're hearing a lot of worsening of symptoms mm-hmm. or re-emergence of symptoms from the past so a lot of people who thought like I was through it like I, I thought I was done I thought I was quote-unquote recovered and like it came back and I think a lot of this has helped me even think about like what does recovery actually mean and mm-hmm. like like is that a standard that we want to ascribe to and attain mm-hmm. to or is it something that's really going to be a different experience for every person and so recovery for me might be like I just never experiencing my eating disorder again and recovery for a lot of other people might be like and I'm still like, it might still come back when I'm stressed because that's just the way in which my eating disorder operates. And this is a time of high stress. And what's been um, important to note too is we talk a lot with the folks who operate helplines in other countries like the United States, the United Kingdom and Australia, other English speaking countries. And they've also seen really similar things on their helpline. So mm-hmm. it feels like this is something that's pretty accurate for a lot of people who are struggling right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know at Bana we've seen an increase in um, the calls to our intake line as well. Um, and like you mentioned, the emphasis is more on, you know, I almost need help right now or I, I need someone to help me through it. Um, so, and like you said, in all areas of mental health, I believe that this is happening. So, yeah, that makes me a little bit sad. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. I think it's one of the reasons why in our like what happened while we waited theme for yeah. this year's EDA, we're also wanting to hold space for like the people who have used this pandemic time. It's like their first time that they've actually like had a break in some way, shape or form mm-hmm. to like reflect. And so we've also seen a lot of people reaching out, not just because they're struggling, but because it's like, this is the first time that mm-hmm. I have space in myself to feel like I can reach out for help and I'm ready and I like I don't want to take this anymore and like people have been really wonderfully creative in trying to find solutions for themselves and trying to rethink their own relationships with food and exercise and body and things and I think I also want to hold space for those quote-unquote positive experiences of the pandemic as well I think people are dying and like none of that is ever positive mm-hmm. um, for those who have been struggling with something like this and just hadn't had a quote-unquote break in whatever way even if it was forced yeah. being able to take this time to use this to be like I'm going to use this to change something positive f- positively for me um I want to like commend those folks too because um, it totally is a silver lining in a way that you've been really creative and trying to get support for yourself for the first time yeah absolutely um and like you said you know it's it's been difficult for many um but I I mean the way that I I know I've been getting through this is looking for those little tidbits of positivity and light and um, also taking the time to reevaluate. So that can, you know, that example that you just shared, it's, it, it shows how, um, you know, whatever it may be for you, this is a time where um, you can give yourself that attention and reflect and perhaps take those steps that 
you haven't really sat with and you haven't um, or had the opportunity to sit with. So there's a, there is that silver lining. So it's, it's nice to hear that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let's talk about, um, I know that within Canada, it's estimated that there are 1 million Canadians with an eating disorder. However, um, that number is likely under an underestimate because perhaps people aren't coming forward um, due to mental illness stigma. Um, why are so, what are some other reasons that that might be underreported? Yeah, so there's a couple of things to note with that 1 million number, which is around like a 3% national prevalence. Um, one is just from like a purely data perspective for those who are interested in that. That number's from 2012. It's from the mm. um, Canadian Community Health Survey, I think, the CCHS. And only data on anorexia and bulimia were gathered at the time because some of the quote-unquote like newer eating disorder diagnoses, and I put that in quotes because I think they've always existed, but we mm-hmm. just didn't categorize them in the DSM the same way. Like RFID, like binge eating disorder, like OSFED, weren't represented in the national prevalence statistics. So those folks are missing. So we already know that we're missing those folks. Um, and when we look globally at global prevalence, there was a study by Galmish and colleagues in 2019 that had a 7.8% global prevalence. And so in Canada, if you apply that, that's 2.7 million people in Canada. So now I think it's probably accurate to say, like, we're probably somewhere mm-hmm. in that range, like the one, one to 2.7 million people. Um, I think the reasons for why that's the case and why even that might still be an underreport, there's a bunch, um, as you and I do stuff, like there's an inadequate training sometimes of healthcare mm-hmm. providers. Um, a lot of medical providers don't receive a lot of eating disorder training. And I know when you and I are both out in the community, I feel like we're having to do some of that professional development ourselves. I think we've talked in this podcast on how there's like an under-recognition of eating disorders due to some of the assumptions and stereotypes about what eating disorders look like. And mm-hmm. especially for folks in um, larger bodies, people struggling with binge eating disorder, et cetera, those who aren't young, thin, white women, um, you might be overlooked by healthcare professionals and think that you are struggling with something else or it's like a gut issue where something else is going on as opposed to being an eating disorder. Um, we've talked about how eating disorders are normalized and sometimes glorified in society, like the dieting and over-exercising. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I don't know, the, un- the only other thing that stands out to me too is that I don't know if researchers have had the funding and ability to prioritize investigating eating disorders in underrepresented groups. So mm-hmm. people who are non-white people who are experiencing a low socioeconomic status or experiencing food insecurity, people from our 2SLGBTQ communities, especially our trans folks, like those are people who all struggle with eating disorders too. And I don't know if they're represented in the research. Um, And so we're probably missing them as well. Um, And so all this together probably Mm -hmm. contributes to that under report. And I think for those listening, the message there is, more people are affected by this than we think. Like, mm-hmm. this is serious and we need action on it. And um, those are the things that I think are on my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, thanks for that. That was really well um, summarized. And, and um, like you said, uh, that's in, when you were saying all this, I was thinking that, you know, wow, 
when you put it out and you say it out loud, there is so many factors that are involved. Um, and one for me, and I think it's because our work um, that stands out for sure is uh, what you mentioned about healthcare and how perhaps people aren't well trained in this or um, it's just so ingrained in, in society and in diet culture that it's normalized. Or maybe per- someone goes in for something else, but they're maybe maybe the actual cause might be their eating difficulties, but um, what they're presenting with is something different. So there's a lot of work that still needs to be done, I think. Um, and and it, I mean, it, it kind of makes me sad as well. It's like, if anything, when someone goes to the doctor, that's where they need help. So that's where we sh- one of the places I think we need to begin. Um, so oh, I guess what are some of the important considerations that come to mind for you when educating healthcare providers, what do they need to know as it relates to eating disorders or perhaps weight stigma, diversity? Um, what is important, do you think? Yeah, I think there's a lot, and I think it really speaks to the lack of education on this and the lack of way in which mental health training is sometimes given to people who end up doing a lot of the primary mental health care support. And if a primary care provider screws up maybe their assessment or interpretation of what's going on Mm -hmm. it can really close a door for a lot of people and I know for at Netic we have so many stories of people like who are so brave connecting with us after a failed healthcare experience and being like like I didn't have a good experience so I'm reaching out to you to hopefully find one that will be better Mm -hmm. and we're always like commending them for being like like it's really easy to probably just give up after your doctor who you go to and you trust isn't really um, providing the support that you need um, but that speaks to like the already the really wonderful strength that a lot of people have and I think for doctors in addition to the just assessment pieces like the understanding of what an eating disorder is from a signs and symptoms perspective and the listening to your client telling the story and really believing them where they're at I think some of what we talked about in the way diet culture can be in a medical profession is the way in which um like thin privilege is very apparent and the way in which like fat phobia is very apparent. So a lot of times, like a lot of people sometimes may even start a diet or weight loss routine because a doctor recommended Mm -hmm. it. And while there might be in some cases like medical reasons that are appropriate for that, Mm -hmm. in many cases, people in larger bodies just have so much blamed on their weight as opposed to like the actual pain that they might be experiencing somewhere else. Like almost everything is just, well, like you, you look kind of big, so let's let's ask you to do this. And there's so much harm done in that statement. And I think when I'm talking to healthcare providers, it's often trying to get them to reflect and unlearn some of that those beliefs that they might have about weight, and to act in a way that isn't, frankly, weight based discrimination. To stop being discriminatory about weight and stop thinking that your eyes tell you what you need to know. To follow your assessment strategies and to really like look in and be comprehensive and give the patient the care that they deserve because um, we're missing probably so much and I don't want to like undercount how much like a negative initial experience really harms someone from reaching out further Um, because we want our healthcare system to be one that advocates and helps and provides for our our folks and not just um something that they encounter. And I think it's mm-hmm. not just on doctors. I think like if we as a Canada's universal healthcare system, quote unquote, also funded mental health better, um, we would better be able to 
provide extra support and we might be able to link a social worker always in every primary care clinic and could do some of the mental health stuff they get more training or a psychologist or a psychotherapist or a peer supporter or something like that where we're able to have a maybe a more person-centered approach to healthcare and I think our funding on healthcare really kind of stayed has stayed the same for most of for all of my basic Mm -hmm. adult life and I feel like since the 60s or 70s and I think we really need to modernize that to reflect the current realities that we all face. Mm -hmm. That was well said. Uh, I like what you said too, uh, the way you put it, where you said like using your, not only your eyes, but, you know, following through and being really comprehensive and making it person-centered. That's very important. Um, So I want to get a little bit to prevention work and, um, I mean, we have a long way to go in that too. As a part of my role, when we go speak to youth, um, we focus it a lot on concepts like developing positive body image and increasing self-esteem and how you can do that and focusing on your internal qualities or building resiliency and building those skills and healthy relationships, things like that. (coughs) Sorry, my voice... (laughs) keeps cutting out on me today um so um you know that's great and but those one-off situations where you know we come in for one time evidence tells us that that's not enough you need to be um doing that you know with regular regularity and consistency and having those positive role models that will help follow that through so uh, there is a lot of work to do so what do you think needs to be done provincially or nationally to help in prevention of eating disorders in Canada? Yeah, I think um, your summary, I think, starts with a lot too. I think I'm going to start with the individual and work our way up because I think for those listening as individuals mostly, I really want to emphasize that I think prevention starts with them and that each and every one of us has a role to play in being a better human and knowing better how to support someone and getting a sense of resources so when things go awry, you feel like you're you're confident about your next steps and you're already kind of doing that first step of becoming informed because like Netics and Information Center and we have a wide collection of resources you can go to or chat with us on the helpline or something. Like BANA is a really wonderful resource to get that to. 35% of our helpline contacts actually are from friends and loved ones. So mm-hmm. don't just feel like it if you're not personally affected that you can't reach out because Um, you can and getting that information can really make a difference if you're championing this in your local community and if we don't have local champions I think it's really hard to do the provincial and national things that you're talking about Steph because ultimately I think we we get those provincial and legislative um, provincial legislative levers pulled when we have a champion who's willing to be like Mm -hmm. this cause is something that matters to me and so in Ontario um, MPP Jill Andrew recently proclaimed eating disorder awareness week with her bill 61 Um, and she's been a champion for this cause there and that's a really good foundational legislative start for us to potentially start asking for different forms of funding for eating disorders in our province because healthcare is often regulated here and then nationally i think focusing on what what are those national levers so often that's like research dollars Mm -hmm. or things for the public health agency of canada or ways to create strategic funds that can then have um, provincial um, buy-in to potentially get access to those funds to invest in eating disorders. 
I think we have to figure out what levers those are and then be able to really take a population-based approach to prevention. So like you said, some of the work that you and I do are just one-offs. And I think the way we actually do this is to make sure that we have people on the ground whose job is prevention to be the, be interacting with local public health units and school boards and after-school centers and community centers where people already are and be able to provide information so that we're all on the same page so that we go into a school and a kid gets the message that you're giving them on positive body image. Their teacher knows how mm-hmm. to reinforce that. And then at home, their parent knows how to how to reinforce that too so that there's a consistent message for that young person around the relationship they can have around body and food and weight. Um, And if we can do that in every community regionally across the province and across the country and adjust for those regional differences, because some of our Indigenous communities are going to need different strategies. Some of our Black and Brown communities are going to need some different strategies. Um, Being able to adjust for that as we go and have like local communities of practice in our regions, I think will be really helpful in making sure that we're trying to account for all of this and ultimately that's a lot of work like we're talking like five ten years more like lifelong commitments and that's what will take funded staff positions to hopefully be able to do that but if we have that commitment i'm really confident that we can make a dent on the environmental social like risk factors for eating disorders um, and potentially ultimately get to a society that we all want one where people trust their body they're flexible around food Um, They feel like they have an understanding of themselves and multiple ways to cope with stressors that come up in their life. Um, And they're loving and kind to other people. Like, I think that's, that all sounds like a wonderful goal. And I don't want it to just be an ideal. I want it to be something that we can actually attain. Mm, That was really well said. And um, definitely something that I would like to get to as well. Um, and I like your optimism that, you know, it's not just a lofty goal that we can get there. And it's really about that um, ecological approach where we're all working together and we're all on the same page. And that consistency of message that we want to get out there about health and wellness is um, translated be- in, in different at different layers of our society. So I love that. And I don't want to, um, I think it's a nice way to almost come to the end of our discussion here. Um, but before I do that, I just wanted to ask if, if there was anything else that we didn't get to today that you had hoped that we talked about. Um, was there anything we missed? Not in my mind. I think like we, we could always yeah, we, talk about this. And I feel like you and I especially could talk about this <laughs> you, the whole time. Um, I think but, this is a really um, good EDA episode as well, because we touched on some of those real core um, awareness and advocacy pieces. Mm-hmm. And I think like for folks, I guess, listening, know that if you go to nedic.ca slash contact, you can see the helpline hours and our latest hours and things there and ways to access the chat. Obviously, you already know Banna if you're listening to this. Mm-hmm. And so you're well on your way already to being pretty informed. Um, but I think um, I really like, especially that piece on prevention, like I really think everyone has a role. And I think part of the battle is just figuring out like what your role is. And it could be just as like, quote unquote, simple as listening to something like this and being able to better support a loved one and be a safe person for someone to talk to about this issue or someone who just decides to champion this in your local parent council or in your in, as a teacher in your classroom. 
and eventually, hopefully, you're connected to people who can then be decision makers in on city councils and in provincial legislation and in federal legislation. And I think together as a community, that's how we're going to get change on something that has so many social interconnections like an eating disorder does. Because um, it's not just the, the biological piece, it's also the ways in which it, the medical piece interacts with our society and the way we do and don't support people who are struggling. Mm-hmm. Definitely. All right. So um, you kind of already answered this, but I ask every guest on our podcast this at the end. Um, but because the podcast name is Be Yourself, Happy, Healthy, and Hopeful, I always ask my guests, and they can answer this open to their interpretation, but what are you hopeful for in 2021? So it could be for us as a, a world, a community, or even personally. What are you hopeful for in 2021? Yeah, I think um, people always say that I'm an optimist. And if any of my friends ever listen to this, they know how like pessimistic that I am. But I think I have, <laughs> like, my hope and my intention is that we really, like, learn from history. Like, we we name the truths for being the truth and we recognize that there are many different truths and we help people recognize like you can start where you are and use what you have and do what you can and find faith in like that way of trying to be a better human for the world. Like it, I think it's so easy to just get so stuck in like information overload with so much going on and it can just feel so much easier to just not pay attention. But I'm hopeful that, especially with COVID and things happening politically around the world, that like we can pay attention to the world and we can confront these things and we all can figure out a role to play and the ways it impacts people affected by eating disorders and the way it impacts people just in general in society. That um, I'm hopeful that we, I believe in our like, functional capabilities as human beings to use resources that we already have to do what we can. I don't think we need to learn anything um, extra or be rocket scientists or any of those things. Like I think we have a lot of what that is already within us. Yeah. Wonderful. That was nice. Okay. So this brings me to the end of my talk with Ari. Thank you again, Ari, for doing this with us. We're really appreciative. We're no, we know you're very busy, especially at this time of year. Yeah, no worries at all. And I think you're probably just as busy as I am, if not more. And so I'm happy that we both got a chance to talk Me too. to this. And I hope that your listeners enjoyed this episode um, and look forward to continuing to collaborate with you and Banna as we go forward. Absolutely. I agree. I look forward to that in 2021. Um, for anyone listening... Um, happy Eating Disorders Awareness Week. If you'd like to get involved, please check out, like Ari said, netic.ca or if you're local in Windsor, banna.ca. We have some exciting things planned for you locally and um, uh, and nationally. And on Netic's website, usually they outline what's going on throughout the country. I know this year it will likely be a lot of virtual events. Um, but if you do have the extra time to learn something, like Ari said, you know, maybe just take that small steps and do what you can and learn a little bit more about eating disorders and mental health. Um, we're happy that you are here listening today, and I look forward to a year of um, 
education, prevention, and learning a lot more about how we can better our communities. So thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.